Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. We're looking today at chapter 2, and the title of the message is The Quest for the Perfect Mate. Would you bow with me, please, for a moment of prayer? Again, Father, as we open your holy word and we open our minds and turn our hearts uh, to your throne of grace, we pray for your continued blessings to be upon us as we enter into this time of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of your holy word. I pray that as your messenger, that Holy Spirit, you'll fill me with your presence as you have already done so, but would continue to do so. Block out any thoughts from my mind other than those that you want me to have. Please, in the name of Christ and on the authority of his shed blood, block the devil from entering into my mind or my thoughts or even my motive and even the minds and thoughts and motives of our people today. We want Christ to be exalted in what we have to say and the way that we worship you and proclaim the unsearchable riches of your holy word. Open our hearts, Lord, to receive that word and believe it and act upon it that would bring honor and glory to you and good things to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The quest for the perfect mate. Of course, as you know from last Sunday, the reason behind these four sermons dealing with passages of Scripture from the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, has to do with the tsunami that has hit the shores of America uh, regarding um, the immorality, the illicit sexual relationships that is so prevalent in our society today. The recent movie, The Fifty Shades of Grey, again reminding us that the world proclaims the wrong kind of message uh, that God intends for us to have regarding love and romance, marriage, and the sexual intimate experience of husband and wife. Uh, I've got to where I quit saying uh, that uh, sex should be enjoyed through a man and a woman. It should be a married man and a married woman, not just uh, a man and a woman, because that opens the door for illicit sex of uh, homosexuality or uh, adultery or fornication or whatever it may be. So uh, there's nothing that we should be ashamed about when it comes to love and romance and marriage and the sexual relationship. That's the way God made us and intended us to, uh, to enjoy the relationship. You remember over in the book of Genesis, uh, where God said that it was not good for the man to be alone, that he would make a helper for him. I like the way the Living Bible or the Good News or even the New American Standard that I read from says, uh, in the King James, of course, it says make someone a, a, a helper meet for him. And what does all that mean? I understand the praise to mean that for Adam, there was not found a helper, not anyone that was compatible to him. And so God of course, put him to sleep and brought from his side, from his rib, a woman, and she was to be a helper suitable for him, a woman who would be appropriate for him, a woman who would help him to be all that God intended for Adam to be, the same purpose and reason that God has given you your companion, someone who is a good fit for you, someone who is suitable for you, someone who completes you, someone who helps you to become everything that God has intended for you to be, and you as a husband will help your wife to be everything that God has intended uh, her to be. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, chapter 2 and verse 24, that for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And then in verse 25 it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in the beginning it was intended that when God created man, he made man the way he is and woman the way she is. And that there they stood without any clothes on. There was nothing embarrassing about it, nothing that they were ashamed of. The Bible is very clear in saying that when they were naked, they were not ashamed. Of course, it was sin that, of course, brought the, the realization to them that, uh, uh, that they were naked. And uh, um, Adam attempted to cover his nakedness by taking leaves and forming, making some kind of a, an apron that would cover their nakedness. But that was not God's intention originally. Then the Bible says in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. The word knew there, of course, is a, a gentle, tender, nice way of saying that they had a sexual relationship, that they had sexual intercourse. And, you know, that's how uh, uh, children are conceived and that's how children are born. There's not a person in this room there's not a person in the balcony or in the choir or in the lower auditorium where others have gathered. There's not a human being in this entire world who just happened to, to exist. Whether you like to think about it or not, your mom and dad had sex. That's how you got here. They didn't find you at Walmart on aisle three. Or if you have twins or triplets or a multiple amount of children, you don't go to Costco or Sam's and find them in bulk form. Uh, all children, all human beings, I got here, you got here, we all got here because our moms and dads got together and had sexual intimacy. And they were, she conceived and you were born nine months later. And uh, so you weren't found under a rock. The stork didn't bring you. The stork is dead. And some of you didn't even know he was sick. <laughs> Uh, but there's one word in the title of the message today that uh, I've struggled with and because some people have asked, and that's the word perfect. Uh, because, uh, and it says a quest for the perfect mate. Uh, well, uh, the problem is there's none of us who are perfect. If we, if we think of the word perfect as sinless, then no, none are righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I remember the story about a preacher who asked on one occasion if there was anyone in the audience who knew or had ever known of a, of a perfect man. And an elderly gentleman in the back of the church stood up and, and raised his hand and said, I, 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 I've known a perfect man. And the preacher said, well, who was that? And he said, my wife's first husband. <laughs> there are no perfect people. And, and I like the word uh, that he said that, that it was suitable. Just, a, just a, a perfect mate, just like the pieces of a puzzle, just perfectly fitting together, like the pieces of, of a machine that all the parts are just perfect for it's, it's each other. They all fit just the way they're supposed to, and the machine runs smoothly and successfully. And, and so there's the quest for finding that individual who's just a compliment to you or to me as my wife is and I'm um, to her. It works both ways. It's a two-way street. It's not a, a one-way street. Uh, so it's, it's a suitable individual, someone who is just a perfect fit for you. And then someone asked out of the choir, said, well, having a quest for a perfect mate, does that mean we all get a second chance? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> and so that led me to think of uh, something else I thought about the title, uh, because I know most of you, if not all of you here this morning, already have found that perfect mate. So maybe we need to change the title. 
to being how, how to be a perfect mate, how to be a perfect mate. You already are, are, are together as husband and wife, uh, but you still have a lot of work to do uh, regarding being the, the mate that is suitable for your companion. So we need to do that today. When you talk about for Adam, there was not a helper suitor, suitable for him. I've looked at the other translations. And, uh, of course, the King James says there was not found an helpmeet for him. Uh, the Holman Christian Study Bible says no helper was found as his complement. The New Living Translation says there was no helper just right for him. And the Net Bible says for Adam no companion who corresponded to him was found. And the Amplified Bible says there was not found a helper meet, and then in parentheses, as the Amplified often does, translates it farther, suitable, adaptable, complementary to him. So uh, we are to be the kind of mate that God intends for us to be, not like the individual that the late Zig Ziglar said when he got on an airplane one time. He sat down, man, and during the course of the conversation, he looked over and saw that he had his wedding band on the wrong finger. And he says, I can't help but notice you've got your wedding ring on the wrong finger. And he said, yeah, I know. I married the wrong woman. <laughs> so uh, I hope that that's not true for you. Today we're going to be looking at then a quest for a, a perfect mate, someone who will compliment you. And, and if you've already found your mate, then certainly that it would be someone uh, that you could become that perfect mate who would complete and compliment your companion today. There are two basic ideas that I want to develop and, and pursue this morning, and it has to do with dating and with courtship. There are really two different segments in the, in the progress of becoming husband and wife, where you have a dating period of time, as well as a, a, a courtship period of time. Some of us have already been through that. There are some young people here today or college students, who, or maybe you have grandchildren who are in the process of doing all of this and perhaps you could, uh, you could uh, uh, take notes and, and have something that you might share uh, with them about this. Uh, uh, sometimes the question is asked, why should we wait until we get married to have a sexual experience? You know, the world would say to you, well, there's no need for you to wait. Just go ahead and do that. Hollywood tells you to do that. Many of the television programs that you see today will tell you to go ahead and don't wait until you get married. Of course, the main reason for waiting, of course, is it's God's plan and God's ideal. You remember over in the, in the book of James, James warned those individuals who say, be, be careful and be aware, that, uh, be warned that uh, those of you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city and do this and that and the other and buy and sell and get gain. You don't know what tomorrow will hold for you. Rather, it would be better to say, if God wills, then we will do this. The problem that James was having with those individuals is that they made out all of their plans. The problem was they did not include God. And you know it takes three people to have a successful sexual relationship and a sex successful marriage. It takes a man and a woman and God. It is a three-legged stool that stands with those three things. And so when you have as a husband and a wife, God is the only other person who makes up that marriage and makes it unified and makes it what God wants it to be. And so when a couple stands before a preacher, they are, he is performing uh, a marriage that is holy matrimony. The word holy means separate. And so it is a holy thing. It is a sacred thing. And the Bible warns us about not marrying someone uh, who is not a believer in Christ. 
And uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we are not to be unequally yoked. And what that means is that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is your Savior, then the person that you date, the person that you court, the person that you marry, likewise should be a believer. Why would an unbeliever be connected with and hooked up with an unbeliever? And so what compatibility is there? It's, it's, there's none. Paul talks about this in vivid detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So do not be unequally yoked together. So when you're dating or have dated or if you're a companion, you're already married, hopefully they are believers in Christ. And if not, then hopefully uh, they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Malachi tells us in the second chapter of his book uh, that the Lord is the unseen witness at every marriage ceremony that is performed. And the reason why Malachi is very specific with this in verse 15 of chapter 2 says, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and in spirit, or you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. That's what God wants you to. God wants you to enjoy sex. He wants you to have the sexual intimacy that is meant to be a husband and a wife. And one of the main reasons that we have that blessed God-given gift is that we might have children who might in turn become saved and know the Lord and likewise on right on down, right on down the, the, the list. So the reason why God wants us to be married is that we might have children. And of course, the only way that you can have children is through that sexual intimate relationship that you enjoy as husband and wife. But let's think about dating for just a moment. There are several things that are on your outline that will help you to keep up as we work our way through this. That there are some desirable things that we are to expect during the dating process. And one has to do with communication. So look at Solomon chapter 2 and the first two verses. Sometimes it's difficult to understand when you're just reading out of the regular translation who's speaking uh, at, at any one given point. So in verse 1, I believe that it, that it is Shumalite, the girl that Solomon is infatuated with. She says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. So, so this is her expression of her self-worth her self-worth, and she is communicating that, that she is the rose of sharing and the lily of the valley. Solomon responds, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. This has to do with communication, that she has expressed herself, and Solomon responds by doing so. The word communicate comes from a Latin word which means to share. And so they're sharing with one another. And we are told by those who deal with the uh, marriage problems in, in the world that 85% of all marriage problems are due to poor communication. I read about a woman who went to see a lawyer and uh, she began the conversation by saying, I want a divorce. And the lawyer asked, well, do you have a grudge? She said, no, but we have a carport. Well, do you have grounds? Uh, yes, we have about five acres up in the mountains. Oh, that's not what I mean. I mean, does he beat you up? No, I get up about a half an hour before he does. Well, the lawyer said, let me try again. Does he whine a lot? No, we're teetotalers. Well, again, the lawyer probed. Does he give you the third degree? No, he didn't even finish college. Well, asked the lawyer, what's the problem? Well, he said we can't communicate. <laughs> 
Well, communication is a big part of our ongoing relationship, especially in marriage. Any man who can, you know, any man can be romantic during the dating time and be on his best behavior for a season, show good manners for a while, but what a man who truly knows how to listen has the capacity to continue carrying on communications. So Shulamith says, I am the rose of sharing, the lily of the valley. Uh, the rose of Sharon was a flesh-colored meadow flower, meadow flower, and she's actually expressing her humility here. She, she's a country girl. You go back and read the first chapter of Solomon, the Song of Solomon, and she, she makes reference to uh, her dark skin. In fact, some translations uses the word black. She was not a black individual. If you'll go on and read the next verse of Scripture, uh, she was responsible for tending the vineyard which meant that she had to spend a lot of time outdoors and consequently she had, she had just been burned by the sun and had a deep dark tan and she, she was very conscious of that. And, uh, and so uh, she's recognizing that, uh, that she's just a common flower. Uh, nothing, every, nothing special about me at all. Uh, she says that I'm the lily of the valley. It's, it's a beautiful red flower commonly found in Palestine. She thinks humbly of herself in comparison to the king. She's a country girl. He's the king. And so here's a country girl uh, being courted by and dated by uh, the king of all of Israel. But he, he affirms her uniqueness. Notice his response to her. Well, you may be just the rose of Sharon but you're, and, and the lily of the valleys. But in verse 2 he says, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Well, you're just a rose among a whole lot of thorns. So he is lifting her up. He's building her up in his communication. He's responding to her. Don't put yourself down. You're more valuable and more important than you may realize. You're a lily among all of the thorns. And so he affirms her and supports her and encourages her with his communication. So a grow, there's a growing ease in communication. The second thing is a growing feeling of endearment. If you'll notice, look at verse, uh, there, there is a favorite term that Solomon has for her, and he calls her my beloved, my dove. And in this chapter, five times, he talks about her being his beloved. Look at verse 8. Listen, my beloved. Behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look at verse 10. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Skip down to verses 16 and 17. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle. So they're expressing their intimate, endearment, appreciation for one another and confirming their love for one another. So they communicate, they express their love. But then notice the third thing, that there is a need for restraint. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or waken my love until she pleases. 
Now, what he is saying here is that, yes, uh, you start dating, you start courting, you get in a, a close relationship, and if you're not careful, uh, the natural, normal, God-given urges that you're wanting to have a, a sexual intimacy with this individual, you, you need to put what we call a governor on that. You know, in a car or in trucks, sometimes uh, they put what's called a governor on that, which means that you can only go so fast. And when you push that uh, uh, pedal down, uh, although you may just keep pushing and pressing on it, the governor there is a little device that uh, puts a limit on how fast you can go. And so uh, here uh, the scriptures is saying, yes, it's natural and it's normal to have urges, uh, to express your love, to have sex, to want to have that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a God-given gift, but you need to be careful. Put a governor on it. And that's what she's saying here. Yes, I'm in love with him. I'm infatuated with him. He is with me. I'd love to sleep with him. I would love to lie down with him, but I'm going to put a restraint on it. I want to remain a virgin. And we saw last Sunday in the message talking about love and marriage and romance and sex uh, that he uh, commended her, that she had saved herself, that she had not been promiscuous, that she had not had sexual relationships with other people, that she had remained a virgin, which is a commendable and honorable thing to do, uh, not just for the woman, but also for the man. You should never have entered into a physical, sexual relationship with someone else. Keep yourself clean and pure and a virgin until you are married. Now, there are at least three different times that this warning is given. It's mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 8, uh, but it is also mentioned in chapter uh, 3 and verse 5. Look at chapter 3 and verse 5. It, it said again, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases, until it is time. And then the next third time that it is mentioned is in chapter 8 and verse 4. The same warning is given. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. That is, until the desire can be actually fulfilled. So you have a sexual drive and a sexual thirst and a hunger, but restrain it, uh, guard it, protect it until you're married and that you can give yourself totally to your husband or you can give yourself totally to your wife with a, with a clear conscience and you're not afraid or embarrassed or ashamed at all in all of this. So there's the restraint. And then, of course, there is uh, open acknowledgement of your dating relationship. There is the setting of the love where in verse 4, uh, Solomon is proud of her. He's not embarrassed or ashamed to be known that uh, uh, she is the man that, um, or he that is, he's the man that she loves and likewise. And so uh, he takes her home uh, and he has a banquet for her. And in front of everybody in this banquet, uh, he centers uh, of attention is on her. And he is proud to present her. This is uh, uh, my girlfriend. This is the lady that I'm in love with. This is the one that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And so, so he's proud to, to, to be uh, associated with her. He, she is his treasure, and he's not ashamed to let other people know about it. Notice the safety of the love is also expressed in verse 4, uh, because he has brought me to his banquet, and his honor or his banner over me is love. Uh, so oftentimes a king would have a banner. Uh, especially for the military if they were going out to war. Um, and we still do this today. Our, our troops, when they are in battle, they carry a flag. 
and it identifies them as to the uh, army that they belong to. Uh, if uh, the banner uh, indicates what uh, uh, regiment they are in and so forth, and, and this king has a banner, and he has this banner uh, over her, and it is a banner of love. And uh, a banner would assure her of security, of protection. She will feel safe to be in his presence. And, and so there's the safety that she enjoys in this. And, and when a girl dates a boy, she wants to know that she's not going to be taken advantage of. Uh, that he's not going to, that he has the only thing on his mind is to, is to seduce her and, and to, to have sex with her. And, and girls, let me, if, if, you're, if you're dating, let me simply re say to you that, that don't go with a boy that, that is trying to, to have sex with you. Uh, you, you protect yourself. If you're uh, in a, a, on a date with him and you're in a car with him and he tries to get fresh with you, slap him. <laughs> Knock his head off. Call 911. <laughs> Call mom and dad. Get out of the car. Get away from him. He's not for you. He's not intended to be for you. If that's the only thing that he's dating you for, he's not got your best interest in mind. He's got one thing only, and that's to have sex with you. And so restrain that, but at the same time protect yourself from that. And if he's an honorable, respectable young man, he's going to honor you. He's not going to take advantage of you. Uh, and so get away from him. Now notice something else. Uh, the, the third thing is, of course, the satisfaction of love. Look, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Now she's not saying I'm, I'm sick of love, okay? Uh, she's saying I am sick with love. I am just so much in love, I'm just nauseated. I want to throw up. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. She, she's just head over heels in love with him, and she is just overwhelmed as to who he is. And, and he's the king, and he's brought me into this palace, and all of these maidens are here, and they're much more beautiful than I am. I'm, I'm just a, a, a lily in the, among the thorns. I'm just the rose of Sharon. I'm just an humble person. I'm just a country girl. And here are all of these beautiful women, of all the women that he could have chosen to be his wife, he has chosen me. And it's, this is just overwhelming, and I, I am just weak. And she says, I need some raisin cakes, and I need an apple to eat. Why? Because, well, she needs the nourishment. It is believed that raisin cakes and, and apples would have been uh, aphrodisiacs that would enhance your drive and, and your uh, love and, and desire for, for someone else. And, and she said, man, I, I just need, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I'm passing out. I need some help. I need some raisin cakes. Why raisin cakes? Well, because they were considered to be uh, enhancements uh, for your, your sexual drive. I, I want to direct your attention to the book of 2 Samuel. In the book of 2 Samuel and verse 9, uh, I think uh, Cliff may have made reference to that last evening or talking about when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And, and prior to that, his army, his men had been out fighting. And they'd been away from home for a long, long time. And saying, of course, that the men who were married had been away from their wives and had not satisfied their sexual needs and desires. And so listen to what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning with verse 
12, because he talks about the ark is brought back. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed, Obed, uh, Obed Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And he goes on to talk about how they brought the ark back. But then you come to verse uh, 19. Or verse 18 says, When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Verse 19. Furthermore, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed each to his house. Why? Because they had been away for so long that they had not satisfied their sexual desires and that he gave them raisin cakes to enhance that. And so now Shulamith is weak and she needs nourishment and she needs strength and she says, feed me some raisin cakes and some apples that I can sustain my strength and my drive. So again, it's nothing over which we should be embarrassed or ashamed of. That was just the way it was, and that's the truth of the matter. And then the final thing, again, in verse 7, there is the, the sanctity of love, that they are to recognize that it is a holy thing and that they are to be careful to save themselves until the right person at the right time, at the right place, uh, can consummate their relationship. This leads us then from the conversation to compliments, now to courtship. Now courtship, it begins with verse 8 and following. The word courtship comes from the Elizabethan age era, Elizabethan era, in which the ladies of the court were wooed and won by the knights and lords of the court. And uh, that they were waiting to be addressed by the knight in order to be dated and courted and eventually lead into marriage. There are several things, a couple of things that we see here. First of all, when you talk about dating and courting, there are some questions that you need to ask yourself. Does he spend time with you? Is he anxious to be with you? Look at verses 8 and 9. Uh, listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. Boy, he's excited to get there. He's been away from her for a while. And he can't wait to get there, and he's just pulling out all the stops, as you might say, and hastening the time that he can get there. Verse 9, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind our wall. He's leaking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. And so he's gotten there, but he hasn't rushed right in. They're not married yet. So there's a wall between them, but he's looking through the window. He's peeping. He's not a peeping Tom. He's just looking. Okay, he's looking through the lattice. He's using his eyes. You know, in Philippians 2, it says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. The word look there comes from a Greek word, skopos, from which we get our term microscope and telescope. And he's taking a real good look at her, and he loves her. He's excited about it. Five times, I've already told you, in the chapter, he refers to her as my beloved. He likewise is sick with love, not of love, but sick with that. He's overcome with it, and he's excited about her. He's running to get there. He's having to come over the mountains and through the valleys, but he's going to get there, and he's excited about it, and he is enchanted with her. Look at verse 9. My beloved is like a gazelle, a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. 
So he's love struck with her, just like a teenager who waits at a certain place in the school hall to get a glimpse of the girl that he likes. He has stayed out his post, staked out his post. He knows her schedule. He just wants a glimpse of her, and he is the same way. And he speaks tenderly to her. In verse 10 and 13, he expresses his loyalty to her. Look at verse 10. My beloved, uh, respond and say to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one. And he says the same thing in verse 13. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along with me. So he's loyal to her, and uh, he praises her. Someone said that when Eve asked Adam, do you still love me? He responded by saying, well, who else is there? Twice, verse 10, verse 13, Solomon invites her to arise and come and go with me. Uh, he's not interested in having sex with her at this point. He wants to take her on a, on a little trip. Just go out for a little while to be just him and her. My darling, my beautiful one, he calls her. You know, a, a wife never gets tired of hearing her husband using honest words of affection. Why? Because each word confirms loyalty. You know, Linda, my wife, uh, loves for me to say to her, I love her. And, um, you know, uh, as of today, uh, we've been married for 49 years and four months. If I have told her every day, one time, I love you, I've said to her 17,885 times that I love her. I tell her that more than once. Sometimes I tell her twice a day when I get up in the morning or when I come to work. So if I've told her I love you twice a day for 49 years, I've told her for 35,770 times. But I tell her more than that. Every time I talk to her on the telephone before I hang up, I tell her again, I love you. And so if I've done it three times a day, I've done it for 53,655 times. If I've told her four times a day, I've told her 71,540 times that I love her. After a while, you'd think that'd be enough, wouldn't it? <laughs> but no, no, no. She never tires of my saying to her, I love you, I love you. She reciprocates. She tells it to me as well. So we're in love with each other. And it's not just a sexual thing. Uh, it, it's, I, I love her, body, soul, and mind, and spirit. I love the whole person. And, and this is what Solomon is saying to his beloved wife. And she returns the favor. I love you. Yes, I love you too. Sometimes we say, I love you. I love you more. <laughs> the Bible says, husbands, love your wives. I want you to take your Bibles. I and mean, this time, really, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter, 20, chapter 26, and verse 8. Now, Isaac has a wife. Her name is Rebecca. And he's down out of his territory in Gar Gerar. Uh, he, he's in enemy territory. And he's afraid to tell the people that Rebecca is his wife. So she's his sister. But when you come to verse 9, notice what it says. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. Uh, how then did you say that she is my sister? And, of course, uh, he responded, Because uh, I might die on account of her. Uh, 
Look at verse 8. I, I, I skipped it. Well, let, let's get the complete idea. Begin with verse 6. I'll get it right here. Let's start with verse 6. Genesis 26 and verse 6. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's, not, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking that the men of the, of the place uh, would, might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she's beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out through the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. So here's the king, and he's looking out the window, and here's Rebekah and Isaac. If she is his sister, what is he doing caressing her? And he confronts Isaac and says, she's not your sister, she's your wife. Now, again, I, I like to see what other translations, how, how other translations renders this word sporting. The King James uses the term sporting. He saw Isaac sporting with his wife. The Living Bible says he saw her petting. He saw him petting her. The New Living Translation says he saw her caressing the Good News Translation says he saw him making love to her. The Torah, which is the Jewish translation of the Bible, says he was fondling her. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says he was dallying with her, which is play, playfully, erroneously making love to her. Now, guys, this is the first sport that's mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> the King James Version says he was sporting with her. It's the first sport mentioned in the Bible. It's a good one. You can play it year-round, indoor, outdoor. No special equipment is required. Requires no cost and no skill. Just get with it. Going back to, <laughs> to the Song of Solomon, verse 14. My dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop on the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. They are in love. Fourth, does he share trials with you? Verse 15 talks about the little foxes that spoil. And uh, so he's not hesitant to share with her his problems, his inferiority feelings. Uh, he, he doesn't uh, want uh, anything to interfere with their lovemaking or their relationship. The little fox might be a fox of anger or jealousy or selfishness or resentment or personal habits or whatever. But uh, he shares these concerns with her and they work them out. And then there is the strength. The, the, of, of his trust in her. Look at verses 16 and 17. My beloved is mine and I am his. His pastor, he pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadow flees away. Turn my beloved and be like a gazelle. And uh, so he is expressing his trust and she's expressing her trust in him. Uh, if you'll look at chapter 6 and verse 3. Chapter 6 and verse 3 says... 
I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He who pastures his flock among the lilies. And so they are expressing their trust in one another. Shulamith is saying, I trust you. I love you. I feel safe with you. Uh, you're not trying to take advantage of me. Uh, you're protecting me. I'm under your banner of love. You're not embarrassed or ashamed to let other people know of our relationship. You've brought me to the banquet and in front of everybody. You've introduced me. If, if your boyfriend or the man that you're dating is not willing to take you home to meet the parents or admit to other people that you're in a relationship, get away from him. I, I took Linda home to meet my parents and I, I went to her home and met her parents and, and learned as much as I could about her and her about me. And, and God brought us together. And so they have this trust in each other that they're not ashamed for this to, uh, for them to let other people know that. My beloved is mine, she says in verse 3, uh, chapter 6 and verse 3. She says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. They're talking about ownership here. And, and Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4 in the New Living Translation. The husband should fill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wives. It is a mutual submission. I do not belong to myself. First and foremost, I belong to the Lord. But there's only one other person to whom I belong, and she's sitting right over there. And the same thing about her and me. She belongs first and foremost to the Lord. But she's mine. She is my wife. I am her husband. We belong to each other. I have authority over her body. She has the authority over my body. That's the way God intended it to be. You belong to one another. Every person in a marriage relationship should realize that you're entering into a covenant relationship where you belong to this other individual. You're no longer a separate individual. You're now one in the presence of God. My beloved is mine. And he returns the favor. Now, I'm going to close with this illustration. Our time is up. But I want to tell you about a, an eight-cow wife. <laughs> Uh, I, I read this story, and, and it, it, it really excited me. It, it's a story about um, uh, a man named Johnny Lingo, a man who lived in the South Pacific. The islanders all spoke highly of this man. But when it came time for him to find a wife, the people shook their heads in disbelief. In the South Pacific, in order to obtain a wife, you paid for her by giving her father cows. Four to six cows were considered a real high price for a woman. But the woman that Johnny Lingo chose was plain and skinny and walked with her shoulders hunched over and her head bowed down. She was very hesitant and shy and insecure. And what surprised everyone was that Johnny Lingo offered, offer, he gave eight cows for her. Everyone chuckled about it since they believed that his father-in-law put one over on him. 
Several months after the wedding, a visitor from the United States came to the islands to trade, and he heard the story about Johnny Lingo and his eight-cow wife. Upon meeting Johnny and his wife, the visitor was totally taken back since this wasn't a shy, plain, and hesitant woman, but one who was beautiful, poised, and confident. The visitor asked about the transformation, and Johnny Lingo's response was very simple. I wanted an eight-cow woman, and when I paid that for her and treated her in that fashion, she began to believe that she was an eight-cow woman. She discovered she was worth more than any other woman on the island. And what matters most is what a woman thinks about herself. Eight-cow woman. Well, I'm through with my sermon, so let me wrap all of this up with an appeal. Shifting emphasis for just a moment. Let me say a word, uh, maybe to those of you who feel like I can never live up to what a perfect wife or perfect husband should be. Maybe you've made mistakes in the past, and you cannot go back and erase those mistakes. And so what do you do? You ask the Lord for forgiveness. You go to the Lord. You know, there's, there's nothing that you can do that would cause God to love you any less. Nothing you can do that would cause God to love you any more. God loves you. And he loves you just as the hymn says, just as you are. But you can come to the Lord and you can repent and you can lay your sins at the feet of Jesus and you can say to him, I messed up. I've done things that I shouldn't have. I, I, I was promiscuous. I, I didn't save my virginity until I was married. But the Lord will forgive you of all of that and wipe the slate clean and make it possible for you to enjoy a healthy, wholesome relationship with the companion that you're looking for or, or that you're already married to. God will forgive and he will cleanse you and you can start over and if you'll just ask God to forgive you. Marriage is a supernatural miracle for two people to willingly give up themselves for the benefit of another. It's not a, a natural impulse. Only God can make it possible for you to enjoy that kind of relationship. So if you have messed up, there's good news for you. There is forgiveness and there's restoration. And you can go on and become the kind of perfect mate that God wants you to be for your companion. The Bible is not gray about marriage and love and sex. And the Bible is not gray when it comes to salvation. The Bible is very clear that you, you become a child of God. You are saved not because you do good things, although that's all right. You're not saved because you join a church or you're a member of a certain denomination. You're saved, as we were reminded earlier, only by the grace of Almighty God that Jesus saves and he still saves. And so there's, there are not many ways to heaven. There are not many things that you have to do in order to be saved. There's only one. The Bible calls it the new birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not just naturally, but you must also be born from above spiritually. And it means that you come to a realization that you are a sinner, and that you've fallen short of the grace of God. But Jesus loves you. And, and he died on the cross for you, and he wants to be your Savior, but you have to make that choice as well. Many times I've used from this pulpit the illustration of the marriage ceremony, 
When a woman and a man stands before me as a minister or any minister and the woman makes a commitment to her husband and in essence she says as she looks at her husband, I'm turning my back on all other women, all of the all other men. I choose you to be my husband. From this moment on, you and I will be one. We will be husband and wife. The husband-to-be looks at his bride and says to her, in essence, I turn my back on all other women and I choose you. And we become one in Christ. That's how you also become a child of God. You're saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, I turn my back on the rest of the world. And I take Jesus to be my Savior. I love him because he first loved me. It's no accident, folks, that the Apostle Paul made reference to the relationship between a husband and a wife when he talked about Jesus and his relationship to the church. As a man loves his wife and they become one, Christ loves you. And when you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, he says to you, come my beloved, you belong to me and I belong to you. Solomon took Shumalith to a banquet there's a banquet waiting for you in heaven. It's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And someday, someday, that great bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to you and say, Come, my beloved, to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And oh, what a day that will be. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for your love as it was expressed to us on the cross of Calvary as Jesus laid down his life, demonstrating his love for us. Thank you that he was willing to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing conviction to our hearts of our need to repent of our sins and to trust you as Lord and Savior. And as we come now to this time of invitation, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will have stirred our hearts. And should there be one here today who's never been saved, Holy Spirit, that you would convict them and convince them beyond a shadow of a doubt of your love for them and that they would come in a repentant spirit to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior and to make a commitment of trust for him for all eternity. I pray that if there are others here today who have other decisions to make, whatever it might be, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you would guide them. If they're looking for a church home or rededication of life or whatever it may be, that your will will be done always and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And as God speaks to your heart today, you come. Mm -hmm.